in the gasoline supply situation, we have more than enough uh, to meet our demand, which is in fact shrinking uh, due to the poor economy. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I am Robert Smith. Today is Tuesday, October 25th. And that was oil industry expert Troby Lundberg, you heard at the top. Today on the program, economic growth. Will it destroy the planet? <laughs> You've been taking your cue from the nightly news, haven't you? I, have. I like that. But this is actually a question that we get a lot. You know, Obviously, on Planet Money, we're constantly talking about growth, how to get more of it, all the benefits that come from it. But people sometimes point out, what about the planet part of Planet Money? Can the Earth actually support a continuously growing economy. We have answers coming up. But first, of course, the indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator, three. Things in Europe are still crazy this week. They're supposed to come up with the latest big bailout plan any day now, but the plan keeps getting pushed back. And I find if you if you try and follow all the details in the day-to-day news stories, it gets very confusing very quickly. So I figured for today's indicator, I would boil it down and just lay out the three big immediate problems that the Europeans are trying to solve right now. I like a nice round number. And I actually have an idea. Why don't we try to help you count it down just to add the drama? Let's do it. Let's All right. Do it. One. Or as I might have said, one. They, <laughs> they want to get rid of a huge chunk of Greek debt. As you may recall, the last failed bailout plan, that was going to cut Greek debt by about 20%. Now they're probably going to cut Greek debt by more than half. All right. Ready? Problem number two. two. The Europeans want the banks to raise more money so that they have bigger safety cushion. If you want to use the jargon, if you want to sound fancy, call this recapitalizing the banks. All right. Problem number three. three. And this this one actually does deserve that kind of portentous tone uh, because it's super complicated and scary. What, what they want to do is they want to expand the European bailout fund, mainly because it's not nearly big enough to protect Italy. But it's totally unclear how this is going to happen. Yeah, I actually did a whole podcast about this bailout fund a while ago. Actually, it was in December of last year, I believe, <laughs> which gives you a sense of how long this, this crisis has been going on. But the, the thing that was really striking to me about this fund, it's mostly just European countries borrowing money from the rest of the world, then turning around and lending the money they've borrowed back to the troubled countries of Europe. <laughs> so it's sort of this weird piece of financial engineering to begin with. And now added on top of that, they know it needs to be bigger, but they don't actually want to borrow more money. They want the fund to be bigger, but they don't really want to make it bigger. So <laughs> so there's all these weird plans emerging, and maybe it'll be like insurance. So if you're an investor and you buy Italian debt, the fund will sort of insure some of your losses. It's really just not clear, though, how this is ultimately going to work. It's hard to trick people into lending money to countries that they don't want to lend to in the first place. <laughs> they got in trouble by borrowing too much money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. So, Robert, we on this program, as well as politicians the world over have one thing they like to focus on, economic growth. They talk about the benefits of economic growth all the time. And when you think about it, all the actions taken by this country recently, by this administration, by Congress, they're all about stimulating growth, more factories, more jobs, more services, more cars, more oil spills, more exports, more new companies. Wait, wait, wait. More oil spills. Yeah, yeah. Oil spills. How does that work? We need more oil spills, Robert. Well, (laughs) see, we have this thing called GDP. 
And it measures all the goods and services produced in a country in a year, all of them. So remember that BP oil spill? Remember the spring of 2010? All of the expenditures on cleaning up the oil spill were then added to GDP. Mm-hmm. Now, see, that's that's asymmetric accounting. You're you're not <laughs> you're not counting the negative, and you're and you're adding in the positive. This is Herman Daly, one of the few economists you'll find who's actually against economic growth, and we're going to hear more from him in a bit. But let's dwell for a minute on what he's saying here. This what he calls asymmetric accounting. This is something that a lot of economists agree on. GDP, gross domestic product, does not take into account some of the negative consequences of economic growth. Yeah, so the, the way I like to think of this is if you run a factory, GDP takes into account the cost of your materials, all your equipment, your labor. But let's just say that the factory, I don't know, puts out a lot of pollution. It makes people sick. It could even kill them. Now, that's, that's a cost of your activity, but that doesn't show up when the accountants go down and, and do their typical accounting for GDP. Some economists think that we should try to measure that. For example, Robert Mendelson, he's an economist at Yale University, and he actually tries to figure out these costs. He and his colleagues, Nicholas Muller and William Nordhaus, they wrote a paper called Environmental Accounting for Pollution, which is a sort of how-to guide to figure out how to measure the effects of various industries on the air we breathe. He figures out how many of those particulates, those dirty pieces of pollution that trucks or coal-fired power plants belch out. And then he subtracts the cost of those negative things that the industry does from the value of the positive things it does. And this gives a more accurate representation of the social value of a given industry. Okay, so the, the worst thing that happens is, is uh, we, we kill people prematurely. So air pollution has been known to, to have that effect on uh, humans, particularly on the elderly. Um, but then the other kinds of effects we were talking about were or human morbidity, so illnesses, uh, all the way down to an asthma attack. And then we also looked at uh, ecosystem damages, loss of visibility. So you, you mean uh, the view over the Grand Canyon, if it's hazy, that's, that's, that has a cost associated with it? Yes, it does. That's actually part of the study. <laughs> so it, it, it wouldn't be from emissions uh, in the East Coast, but it would certainly be a, emissions uh, nearby the Grand Canyon. They definitely have contributed to the loss of vis- visibility there. And that's one of the damages we, we actually ma- measure. How do you put numbers on that? Um, in that particular case, we're trying to ve- uh, value visibility. We actually, um, we didn't ourselves, but other uh, economists interviewed um, visitors to those those sites and then asked them, you know, they showed them pictures of the Grand Canyon without the pollution and with it and said, well, what would you pay to have the cleaner Grand Canyon? And people would put small amounts of dollars on, on uh, having that improved visibility. And that's the, those are the numbers that we actually used. Robert Mendelson says these same techniques that they use to put a price on a smoggy day at the Grand Canyon, they can use this technique to put a price on the increased risk of dying from pollution. For that, we actually looked at wage studies that looked at, at people who took very big risks when they took a job versus people who had very um, safe jobs. And, and the people who take risky jobs are paid a, a premium for taking on that risk. And that's, the, that's how we valued um, uh, premature life hmm. lost. How, how much do we on, on average value our own lives? <laughs> well, it, it's not that it's an all or nothing thing. We, we, right. We're not trying to measure the all or nothing thing. But it turns out that if you, if you talk about a very small incremental risk, something like 1 in 100,000, that you might die this year. Mm-hmm. So that's a very small increment in, in your chances of dying. Um, that, that's worth about $60. So you have to be paid $60 extra to take a 1 in 100,000. 
100,000 chance. 100,000, a, a one in 100,000 chance. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's a very small increment of risk. But the reason we're, we're actually talking about that kind of risk is, is that's actually what air pollution's doing to people. It's taking very tiny extra risks. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's actually exactly what we want to be getting a number for. Mendelssohn and his colleagues did basically the same thing that the government does every month for GDP. They looked at pollution, they figured out the price tag, and they added up the costs. 60 bucks per person for the chances of dying sooner, tiny little chance, the cost of a smoggy day at the Grand Canyon. And they came up with a number, which he called the GED, gross external damages. And then he applied this GED number to the individual industries that were producing the pollution. And he found that there's a group of industries that were actually costing more in pollution than they were producing in benefits. And he gave these industries a technical title. He called them bad industries. Probably the most important bad one in terms of it's a very large industry is the coal-fired power plants. And it turns out that they generate an enormous amount of uh, damage as a fraction of what they contribute to society. The ramifications of the study are pretty profound. You know, you think you know what you're paying for electricity. It's the the price that's printed on your bill. But Mendelssohn is saying, no, we are all paying in other ways as well, with more frequent asthma attacks, with a lessened enjoyment of like a national park. Occasionally, we're paying with our very own lives. His solution is to fold that cost into the price of electricity. So, for instance, for coal plants, you would require them to purchase expensive abatement equipment. It would get rid of the harmful pollution. And it would also make electricity from coal probably twice as expensive. At least the price you would see on your bill would be twice as expensive. But remember, he says, we're already paying that cost now. This just makes it obvious. And it gets rid of those other social costs. So we pay more on our bill, but fewer people die. And your family photo in front of the Grand Canyon looks a lot better. And Mendelssohn says this is what we should be doing everywhere. They call it pricing in the cost of negative externalities. For everything that contributes to GDP, we should be trying to figure out, are there hidden costs affecting all of us? We slap a price tag on them, add them to the final bill. Now, this is not easy, as you might expect. Mendelssohn has been working much of his career on trying to price, you know, this one this one negative externality, air pollution. And air pollution is just one negative externality. It doesn't take into account other things. Water pollution, noise pollution, smells, groundwater depletion, carbon emissions. I mean, that's a huge one. Carbon emissions, of course, are the thing that leads to climate change. And there's no end to this. There's, there's a movement now to start adding in other negative externalities to growth, like loneliness, depression, alienation. I mean, in some ways, you can argue that anything that makes you feel bad decreases your enjoyment of life should be factored into growth in some way. And this brings us back to Herman Daly. He says there are so many negative externalities of this type, so many costs that aren't being measured, we will never count them all. And he has a simpler solution. We need to stop growing. That's right. We stop striving for the thing that has been central to economists' notions of advancement and prosperity throughout history, economic growth. Look, I mean, we talk about growth all the time, you know, and and we forget there's a, a big difference between growth and prosperity. You know, prosperity is, is a level which we have attained. And so, you know, if if we maintain the level where we are, we're pretty prosperous. And, and life is pretty good. Uh, growth means more, means going beyond every year, beyond that, more and more and more. And uh, so it's quite possible to be prosperous uh, without growth. Uh, let's put ourselves on this uh, quantitative diet. We're not going to get 
bigger and bigger because we live in a finite environment. We're crowding out too many other necessary activities. And the path of progress will then switch from uh, more and more of the same stuff to kind of the same amount of uh, physical amount of better and better stuff. Mm. Now, here's, here's, here's I guess, where, where the, I, f- I find that it's hard to, to figure out what to do with this idea because if you look at the world as, as a whole, the vast majority of people in the world are already on a diet, the, the diet they don't want to be on. You know, so you've so you got one billion people in India. And you, you were saying if you know, all of those people get to the, the, the level of affluence of Sweden – You've got a huge problem for the environment. Um, That's right. And now, who's going to tell the people of India? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, isn't that fundamentally unfair? Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Uh, life is unfair. And I, I think, uh, let's look at the unfairness. It's, that means it's unfair that some people have huge resource consumption far more than you know than they need and other people have far less than they need that's the unfairness it's the distribution because we don't like the idea of sharing uh you know we talk about sharing oh that's class warfare that's uh, you know let's ma- what's the answer we make the pie grow bigger and the rising tide will lift all boats and everybody in India get, will get richer and richer, and all the people in Western Europe and the United States will get richer and richer. And, you know, isn't this wonderful? Uh, let's celebrate. And this is an idea that has, that has a real intuitive appeal to people. I mean, this is what we hear when people write emails into Planet Money. And, and this idea has been out there for hundreds of years. I mean, going back to, to Thomas Malthus, who wrote about population in the 1700s. I mean, he had the same question we have now. How do you keep growing in a finite world? But I need to say almost all mainstream economists reject this idea. They say, in fact, the pie can continue to get bigger. There are plenty of resources to go around. Even Robert Mendelson, who spent his entire life looking at negative impacts of growth, even he thinks we can and should keep the economy growing. It, it turns out there's more resources uh, available than people sometimes realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've only tapped a, a very small fraction of the resources that are available on this planet. Um, second, it, it's important to recognize that um, getting higher GDP doesn't necessarily mean you, everybody has to have vast amounts of physical things. Uh, one of the things about GDP is, is it's, we're gradually de-physicalizing it. it it's, um, the, we're getting more and more services out of less and less actual material. Right. But that being said, most of the world doesn't have a car and wants a car. Most of the world doesn't have a house and wants a house. Most of the world doesn't have a lot of things that are actually do take up physical, do use metal, wood, and oil. Is is that not you're you're not worried about that at all, or you are? Or how worried? Well, about it? no, you you have to be worried about um, using up your resources, and you have to be careful with them. There's no question about it. But if if for, if you take the forestry example, uh, forestry is now a completely sustainable industry. It grows all its own trees. Now, Robert Mendelson says, you know, in the U.S., it wasn't always this way. In the 19th and 20th centuries, we cut down almost all of our old-growth forests. And he definitely thinks that was a mistake. Those big trees that do remain are now protected by the U.S. government. But this shows how innovative industries can be when they need to be, when, when they're forced to be, we should say. Now, pretty much all of our paper is produced from forests, 
that companies themselves planted. But, you know, you could say, so what? You know, we, we cut down all our old growth forests. We put up tree plantations where these thriving ecosystems used to be. Is that great? And then what about places like the Amazon? H- how does that come out okay? Well, it's funny. We, we actually talked to Mendelssohn about the Amazon. And, and even there, he is optimistic. He says, yes, yes, there is deforestation in the Amazon, mostly to make room for agriculture, he says. But then he adds that the Brazilians might actually do a better job of protecting their ecosystems than we did with ours. Maybe they won't do to their entire forest what we ended up doing to our entire forest. They might actually solve their deforestation problem quicker than we did. It's not something that is is licked. Uh, right. <laughs> but it, it's definitely something that is um, getting close to being licked. It, 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 you, can, you can actively see that, that you know, they're, they're passing legislation. They're trying to enforce the laws they've got um, that, that would, in fact, uh, end this. Hmm. So it, it's imminent, I guess, is what I would argue. And if you look at the past five years in Brazil, the rate of deforestation in the Amazon basin has been slowing. Although this year, people who watch this stuff say that there's a law right now that people are debating that might make it easier to start clear-cutting again. But Robert Mendelssohn takes the long view on this. And he says, listen, we want people to get richer. And if you take me, I'm a perfect example. I care a lot about the polar bears. It makes me really, really sad to think that we might destroy their habitat. And so I'm willing to maybe donate some money. But that's a very rich person's concern, globally speaking, right? If I was starving, if I had to feed my family, chances are I wouldn't care that much about the polar bears. And so Mendelssohn says, this happens globally too. When people get to a certain income level, they start caring about the environment. As incomes rise, it turns out that one of the things people do is is they want to spend money protecting their environment. And so what you see along with these higher incomes is a little more pressure on the environment to, to uh, create this, this much larger income. But it's also true you see a lot more uh, effort to try to protect the environment. Uh, the, the, if you look at where is the environment protected the most carefully, it's actually in high-income countries. You have the money, the income, the wealth to actually do something about the environment. And so it's in these places where you're seeing the first sort of public efforts to try to control um, pollution. Uh, you're, you're seeing efforts to create um, public parks to, to um, you know, protect the ecosystems. All right. So we've got Herman Daly saying growth is bad. We need to stop it. And then you've got Robert Mendelson saying, no, actually, growth is mispriced. And if you get your numbers right, you can put a price on pollution. You can put a price on carbon to help mitigate climate change. If you do all that, growth will pay for itself. You can have your cake and eat it, too. We'll have an affluent world that actually wants to hug its trees. Which is, just gives me warm fuzzies all over. But, you know, there is a huge question out there that overhangs over this whole issue, which is how many of us on planet Earth will there ultimately be? As you peer into the future, as you peer into the next hundred years, if it looks anything like the last hundred years, well, here's what Herman Daly thinks. In my lifetime, uh, 73 years, population has more than tripled. The population of cars, houses, automobile, uh, you know, cell phones, all these artifacts that we use has vastly more than tripled. So there's a huge burden now on the ecosystem to support all of these populations. Now, that's an enormous change. Again, though, Robert Mendelson, not that word. Basically, what happened in the 20th century uh, is a one-time event uh, that's never going to happen again. We went from 1 billion to 6 billion people in one century. 
that that is a one-time thing that was due to, to basically the industrial evolution. And the fact that we went from living from 40 years old to 70. Right. And when you go from 40 to 70, suddenly you have twice as many people. There's a big UN population report, and, and we'll link to it on our website. It is three projections for what the next 100 years might look like. Two of the projections put us pretty firmly in Robert Mendelssohn territory. Population growth plateaus. And if Mendelssohn is right, the richer we get, the more we protect the environment, then there is indeed room for optimism. Then there's one projection, which is the worst case scenario. Population growth continues pretty much the way it has been over the last century. And it's harder to see that projection ending well for the planet. I guess two out of three, though, it's not that bad. Check out our blog, npr.org slash money, for more on Herman Daly and Robert Mendelson. We will also link to that UN report on global population growth projections. And tell us what you think of the podcast. In your questions about economics and the environment, we plan on doing more of these. We're at planetmoney at npr.org. You can find us, of course, on Twitter, Facebook, or Spotify, whatever that is. I'm Alex Bloomberg. You don't know what Spotify is. It's a music streaming service. Oh, it is? Yeah, yeah. We have all the music that's on Planet Money, including the great playlist that goes along with our France and Germany podcast we did last week. Glad I asked. I'm Robert Smith. I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.